1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Let us stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at this text on the Lord's Supper this morning. This is what Paul says, In the following decrees I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I see from the Lord that which I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or, or are dead. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that he will, we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come to you, I will give further directions. You may be seated. As we explore uh, this study on ecclesiology, the study of the church, we come uh, to the second of the practices that the Christ is instituted uh, for his church, and that is the practice of the Lord's Supper. You've just seen the first of, of two practices that God gave his church. We just saw Keith uh, show us the first one, that is baptism, that we learned about last week. This one now is the study and understanding of the Lord's Supper, this supper that was instituted on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and he took a cup and he said that this is my body and this is my blood. What are we to understand about this practice of communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table? What is it we are to uh, do and be a part of? How are we to prepare ourselves for it? The Lord's Supper is, is an amazing thing. In fact, in a book that was written called The 30 Days That Changed America, the author talks about how a communion service would radically change the next 15 to 20 years, in his opinion, of American history. And he tells in the, in the story in 1865 of a service that involved communion and how it changed America. It says in 1865 the Civil War was coming to a close. Robert E. Lee had just surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox. Lee later would beg the southern state legislatures to rejoin the Union to become one nation again. But there was still a question on whether the South could fight longer. It wouldn't happen until after Johnson finally surrendered to Sherman that the war would be over. And thoughts were that the country would come back together with very little problem. But then on April 14th, everything would change. On April 14th, 1865, John Wilkes Booth and Ford's Theater would assassinate the president, Abraham Lincoln, leaving the nation to wonder who would lead the rec re I'm sorry, reconstruction effort but more importantly, how would it be done now that the country had become so divided and the North had become so angry at the loss of its president? That how question would be answered on May 2nd, 1865 at St. Paul's Church in Alexandria, Virginia. After the Sunday morning service, communion was to be served. People would come to the altar to pray and then would receive communion. The black individuals who sat in the back in their own section were not allowed to participate. While the war was over, the thought by many would be that things would be different. And they would be on this Sunday because the first to stand to go and pray was an elderly black man. 
He walked down the aisle to kneel at the altar and he began to pray. This was never done before. And everyone, including the pastor, had no idea what to do. After a couple minutes of awkward silence and confusion, a white man with a flowing white hair and a white beard arose. He had a commanding presence and a confident stride. The gentleman made his way to the altar, knelt right next to the black man and put his arm around him and began to pray with him. Then he took him to the altar so that both of them could be served communion. The older white man with the commanding presence and confident stride was no other one but Robert E. Lee, commander of the Confederate Army. Asked after the service by a myriad of those who had observed his, his approach, asked the question, how could you do such a thing with a black man, a slave? Robert E. Lee would respond, which would be written in every major newspaper in America, which this would happen today. He said the following, that beneath the cross of Christ, all men are on equal ground and we are all newly freed slaves. Communion can be a very powerful time. Now you say, well, how did that change America? The author says that the Reconstruction period was far different because of the example of Robert E. Lee, a great Confederate general. And that because of that, many believe that because of what was articulated in the newspapers, it gave a spirit both in the North and South that the Reconstruction, the time of coming back together, could happen. And over the next 15 years, from 1865 to 1880, that service in Virginia would be the forerunner on how the North and the South were to come together. That's powerful. But I will tell you, it is not as powerful as what Christ instituted on the night that he was betrayed. Because Jesus began a process and a practice for us as his church to partake in the Lord's Supper. And if we want to be the church that God wants us to be, if we want to uh, commune with our Savior in a proper way, then we must understand the supper. We have to understand it. We have to recognize what it means and why Christ instituted it and how we are to be different as a result of partaking of the bread and the cup. In our passage this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that, in in fact, in verse 2 of chapter 11, he says this, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the teachings just as I passed on to them. He says, in a lot of ways, I have a lot of praise for you. You're doing a good job. But notice what he says in verse 17. When he gets to the issue of the Lord's Supper, that which we are going to participate in today, he says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good i wonder what the apostle paul would say of our times of communion as a church more importantly what would jesus christ say as we gather together what would be his response as we look at the first corinthian church or the church of corinth that the letter was written we see that there were divisions If you look from verse 17 on, you see that there were divisions. The rich would come in and sit and and hang out with other rich people. And the poor were placed in places of of, uh, obscurity. And when banquets were put together, the rich would come and they would bring their fine fare uh, to the banquet. But they would say only other rich people could eat it. And because of that, there was divisions. The other problem was is that the Lord's Supper, which was an agape love meal that took place, a little more than what we do here, began to be a drunken party. As people would uh, worship and approach the Lord's table, because wine was used at the time, excess was allowed, and as a result of that, there was drunkenness, and whatever came with drunkenness was never of the Lord, and it only led to debauchery and the like. And so Paul says, I've got nothing that I can say good of your times of communion. I wonder what Paul would say about our times. Now, I recognize and know that there's a greater decorum, if you will, when it comes to our times of communion. I don't see any drunks out there, and I don't see rich sitting with rich and poor sitting with poor. I don't see any of that going on. And so maybe Paul or Christ would say, well done, you're doing a great job. But, but my question this week was, how did the church in Corinth get there? And I began to think about some of the ills that we have. How did they get to the point that this incredible supper 
would lead to drunken parties. How could this supper become something that was to bind us together to become, become a part of our services that separated us? What got a church to go from being what the Lord instituted to what we are seeing in 1 Corinthians? My answer is the same answer I have of some of the concerns that I have for us as evangelical churches. And that is, is that at some point between the Lord instituting the Lord's Supper and the time of 1 Corinthians, people became casual in their approach to the supper, to the table. And one of my biggest concerns for us as evangelicals is we too are casual. We too have little understanding of the importance of this meal. And so as we look at what the church is all about and what the church is called to do, we have to look at this passage of Scripture and understand what does Christ want us to do when we gather around the Lord's Supper. Now there's a lot of things we could talk about. To try to deal with the Lord's Supper in one week is an impossible task. I've tried now two times already. I've preached this message twice already this morning. And I haven't been able to uh, take care of all the issues and all the things we need to know. And so we need to understand this is an overview. And some of it has to do with the mechanics of it, which we need to know and understand. But at the end of the day, we have to come back to the point that it's between Jesus and you as an individual that it's about remembering Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And so I want to take a couple moments with the time we have left, and then we'll end our time around the table. And I want to look at four important things. Do we want to commune properly with our God? If you're a believer, that should be your desire. That should be your want. And so how do we get there? We have to look at four things. Number one, we first need to look at a principle. And the principle is, is what is the real meaning of the Lord's Supper. We have to recognize what the real meaning of the Lord's Supper is. Once we understand that, we're on a good foundation. Now, there's a lot of differing opinions within Christendom of what uh, the Lord's Supper is all about. So we need to understand some things. First of all, we need to celebrate, and we do celebrate the Lord's Supper as an ordinance. Write that down, as an ordinance. The idea here is that ordinance is a Latin term that simply means a command. Now, there are a lot of commands in Scripture that Jesus has called us to, a lot of different ones. He told us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He told us to uh, love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and strength. He told us a lot of things. Why is it that there is this command of the Lord's Supper uh, that is so important? Well, this isn't the only ordinance. We just again saw the ordinance of baptism. What made these things most important? Well, ordinances are commands. And these two commands of baptism and the Lord's Supper are of great importance because Christ, first of all, write this down, instituted them. He instituted them. In three of the four Gospels, we see uh, writing or a proclamation of the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's important. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's arrested, he takes his uh, disciples up to an upper room and he celebrates what would be the last of the Passover meal for the Christians and the beginning of a new supper that would be taken and would be continued to be participated in uh, for the next 2,000 years. The next thing that we see is not only that this ordinance is instituted by Christ, but it was practiced by the first church and the apostles. It was practiced by the first church and the apostles. Just like baptism, we see that communion or the Lord's Supper is practiced. In Acts chapter 2, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that's communion, and to prayer. One of the four activities that is written about first for the church is the practice of breaking bread. And so we need to recognize that this isn't something that Jesus just told us to do, but it's something that is practiced by the apostles in the first church. The final thing is, is that it's explained in the epistles, meaning the pastoral writings for the church. Paul writes in his letter to the uh, Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, he says what our text is we've just read. He articulates and explains how communion is to be done, what excesses should not be a part of the communion celebration, and then how a man or woman ought to examine themselves or see the impending judgment of God in their lives. And so these ordinances are things that are instituted by Christ, They're practiced by the first church and the apostles and they're explained 
in uh, the uh, epistles or the New Testament. And so we see this thing as an ordinance. The next thing we need to understand as we celebrate this is that uh, the Lord's Supper is an outward, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. Now this is very important. Many of you who come from other backgrounds uh, may understand communion or the Lord's Supper differently, or maybe you've grown to understand what we see it as. Of course, all of Christendom doesn't agree on the issue of the uh, ordinance, ordinance of communion. Uh, for many in the Roman Catholic belief, you would know that uh, we believe these to be outward expressions of an inward reality, meaning the elements do not change. But in the Roman Catholic uh, denomination, we know that uh, because of the work of the priests and the theology of the Roman Catholic Church, that the, uh, the bread that we take after it is consecrated by the priest becomes the actual body and the juice that we drink actually becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means that Christ is being re-sacrificed on the cross. Uh, some Lutherans and, and uh, some in the Eastern Orthodox uh, faith uh, don't hold to that strongly of an understanding, but they would say that while the elements physically in themselves do not change, that Christ is present in the elements. We at Village Bible Church hold to uh, the understanding that the elements do not change, that they are bread and they are juice, and they symbolize something greater than themselves. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that there isn't some magic trick that happens when we serve the bread and the juice, but they are outward expressions of something greater than themselves. It's important that we recognize that because just as in last week, if we elevate these practices of baptism and communion and we make them more than what they are, pictures of something greater, then we're in trouble. Last week we talked about the importance of the symbolism of rings, And if we made our marriages all about the rings and we elevated the symbol to something greater than what it is called to be, and that is a ring is to signify our love relationships to our spouses. And so we need to recognize that it isn't the elements. You see, churches throughout church history have always tried to make the elements the big thing. They're not. Jesus is the main thing in our time of communion. That brings us to uh, the purpose as we look at the purpose this morning, what is the purpose? Why, why do we come around a table and, and sip some juice and eat a little piece of bread? What is the purpose? The purpose is quite simply to remember Christ. I want you to repeat that with me. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember Christ. That's the main thing. It isn't to watch a priest or a pastor do uh, uh, magical gymnastics with elements. It is a time that we remember and praise Jesus Christ. Well, what are we to remember? What are we to praise Jesus Christ for? Well, the issue of remembrance is something of great importance. As we look at uh, Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, this would be the last night that he would spend prior to his crucifixion with his friends. If you were to have one final time with all of your loved one and friends, what would you be a part of? What would you be doing? Jesus shows us that what he does is he commands them and teaches them to remember him. Uh, This last month, in the month of September, uh, our church commemorated the 19th anniversary of my brother's death. And I don't know what about it this last year was so significant. 19 years, you would think I would just wait for the 20th anniversary and, and really make it big. But this last year, for whatever reason, I found myself remembering my brother in ways that I had never remembered him in the past. A couple times I found myself with tears welling up in my eyes at the remembrance of my brother. And those who have lost a friend or a loved one recognize the importance of remembrance. If our friends are around, there's not much to remember until they've gone. There's a lot to remember. And I found myself meditating on on some of the things that my brother used to do. I remember uh, some of the things that he said. I remember uh, some of the things that he was most passionate about. And I try to remember them and, and treasure those things up. The Lord's Supper is is a remembrance of not just a friend or a loved one, but of our Savior. And so what we need to understand is we need to remember Christ. To do that, we have to go to a passage in 2 Corinthians. Turn there for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The very last verse of that passage. 
When I was a young man, I asked my dad, I was in high school, and I said, Dad, we are to remember Christ at our time of communion as we partake of the elements. But what are we to remember? And I remember my dad on the way home from church telling me to turn to this passage. He says, Tim, there are three things I want you to remember as you examine your heart the next time you come to communion. And that was this verse. God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are three things that Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 teaches us about remembrance. The first thing we need to remember is our Savior. We need to remember our Savior. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians. He says, remember who? God who made Jesus to be, who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be sin. Now the first thing we need to remember is our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who in eternity past was worshipped and adored. Isaiah chapter 6 tells us that myriads of angels continually cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is Jesus who's being worshipped and adored. This Jesus who was equal with God, who had every luxury in heaven, made a decision to put on flesh. Made a decision at the time that we celebrate Christmas to become the God-man incarnate to put flesh on, to be a baby born in Bethlehem in a stable and to live for 33 years. This God who had everything in heaven comes to earth to be hated, to be abused, to be tempted, uh, to be reviled and to be put on a cross. We need to remember our Savior who left everything in heaven to come to earth who humiliated himself to be found in the form of a man, Philippians chapter 2 says, who laid aside his divine prerogatives, meaning he said, for 33 years, I will, I make a decision that I will not be treated like God. I'll give that up so I can be found in the appearance of a man. We need to remember that Savior. But why did we need a Savior? Because we need to remember our sin. Notice what the text says. God made him who had no sin. There was no sin. Jesus didn't have to come and die on the cross for his sins or the sins of the other persons of the Trinity. He came to be sin for who? For us. The second thing my dad taught me about uh, examining my heart and remembrance is my own sin. While Jesus is holy... While Jesus is perfect, we are flawed and we are dead in our sins. And we need a Savior. The reason why God sent Jesus to the earth was because God so loved the world that He sent His Son that we might have, believe and might have eternal life. The reason why Jesus had to come, the reason why Jesus had to die, the reason why we celebrate this table is because you and I are full of sin. We were born with sin. And without Jesus Christ in our lives, taking care of that penalty of sin, we were on our way to hell. So what does God do? God sends Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He became sin for us. The thing that we celebrate, the thing that we remember around the table is that Jesus became our sin. Every evil thought, every evil deed that you have had, not just this week, but since you were born, even the sin that you were born in as a result of the original sin that we all carry was put on Jesus. You say, well, who does it really impact that I look at this or that on the TV or the internet? Who really, who does it really matter or who really cares if I say this lie or another or I covet this thing or another? It mattered to Christ. It mattered to God because he became sin for us. And we need to remember that the reason why we celebrate this great dinner and this great supper is because of our sin. The final thing is, is because of our salvation. We need to remember our salvation. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us, the text says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is our salvation. We go from death to life. We go from being a sinner to a saint. 
Christ goes, he dies on the cross for us who are condemned, and because he dies for us, we now stand before God reconciled. The Bible tells us a couple things about this reconciliation. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans for a moment. If you're in 1 Corinthians, go a book over to your um, left to Romans chapter 5. To Romans chapter 5. I want you to see the first result of this salvation. Romans 5 verse 1. This is what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and rejoice in the hope of glory, the glory of God. The idea here is we were waging war with God. We were enemies of God. We were insolent. We were God-haters, disobedient people, Romans 1 says. And we're shaking our fist at God and saying, God, you don't know what's right. You don't know what you, what I, you want me to do. I am the God. I am the one who knows what is right for me. And God says because he sends his son and because we are justified that we're no longer waging war with God. That the moment we bow the knee and trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are justified. And peace is brought between us and God. And there's another thing that is brought up. Turn your page, just a page over to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And this is what it says. That because of this peace with God, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And He so condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. The idea here is because of Christ dying on the cross for us, we now can have eternal life. There's no condemnation now because we're in Christ Jesus. Folks, that is why we celebrate this table. That is why we remember. Because Jesus Christ chose. He chose to be our Savior, even though that would mean that He would have to go and be sin on the cross of Calvary. And it's because of that that God took that which was far apart, us and Him, and He bridged the gap and He brought us together that now we are not sinners in the hands of an angry God, but now we are children of our Father in Heaven who we cry out to Him, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. That is why we celebrate. We remember Christ who left His throne in heaven to be one of us that we might one day be with him. Once we understand the purpose of communion, the next thing we have to understand is then who is to participate? We have to look at the participants. Uh, who is to be involved? What, when is it supposed to be served? And some of the other requirements of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you're a member of the church, you would recognize that this has been an important thing that we as elders have been dialoguing with you about. In fact, we started dialoguing regarding this subject almost six full months ago. And you've received letters, you've received uh, different positions on where uh, the elders have found themselves. And so we have this question of who is to participate in this? Who is the one to be involved? And that's the first question we have to answer. Who are to participate? Now, there are a lot of different understandings of uh, the Lord's Supper and, and how it is to be served and when it's to be served. And the question is, who is allowed to participate? And there's a lot of different positions on it. I can just give you four very quickly. The first position is what we call open communion. The idea of open communion is simply this. Anybody who is in the assembly of the people when the, when the supper is served... Uh, is to be served communion, whether believer or unbeliever. The passage of this and the reason for it, all of them come with good reasons. The reason for it is the hospitality of Christians. Just as Jesus dined with tax collectors and pagans, we ought to as well dine uh, with sinners and saints alike. And so what happens is, is in an open communion church, everybody is welcome to the communion table. The second position is what we would consider semi-open communion. 
The idea of semi-open communion is that not all are welcome to the table, but only those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. It doesn't matter what denomination you're a part of. It doesn't matter uh, if you're a part of this local church or not. All that matters is that you have at some point in your life trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. This is the position of semi-open communion. And this focuses in on the um, idea of your conversion uh, to Christ, that you have trusted Christ as your Savior. And that's the position of uh, semi-open communion. Then there's the position of what we call close communion. Close communion goes a little farther than the, the second one, semi-open communion. And close communion is, is that all those who are trusted Christ as their Savior and have been baptized are welcome to the table. And the reason for this belief is that there is such an important emphasis in the New Testament put on baptism that those who have been baptized are welcome to the table. And they use passages like the Great Commission. Go into all nations making disciples. Well, how do you make disciples? By baptizing them. It singularly says baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it says, and then teach them everything that I've commanded you. And so there seems to be a singular focus on baptism. The final position that is given is closed communion. And closed communion is the idea that only members of a local church are welcome at the time of the celebration of uh, communion. Now you say, well, where's the church at on this? Well, I'd say we're in a period of flux, to be quite honest with you. And I want to take a couple minutes to explain why we come to the position we do. At Village Bible Church, we believe that there are four things that someone needs to think through and examine themselves on before they participate in the Lord's Supper. The first one is they need to, uh, first of all, accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. It involves accepting the message of salvation. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39 and 40 tell us that that, uh, Peter preaches the message and people say, what must we do? And Jesus says, repent. They need to accept the message. Those that were added to the number were those that accepted the message. But that text also tells us that it involves affirming our faith through waters of baptism. It says those that uh, accepted the message were baptized. And we talked last week that this affirmation of the faith through the water baptism is of greatest importance. Now that's something that has been different uh, that hasn't been always the case uh, at Village. But it's something that we've seen through the writings of the New Testament, the importance step of discipleship to be baptized. And so we would say the second thing that needs to be a part is the affirmation of our faith through water baptism. The third thing that we see is that we need to be abiding with Christ. John chapter 15 verses 1 through 8 talks about the importance of abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, following Christ. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so how can we participate in the Lord's Supper if we are not abiding in him, if we're living any which way that we want? And so Jesus uh, tells us that if we want to be his true followers, if we want to do as he's commanded us to, then we need to be bearing fruit. We need to be remaining in him and being the uh, uh, branches that are a part of the vine. And so it's important that our relationship, our vertical relationship with God is in order before we participate in the Lord's Supper. The final one is we need to be in agreement with others. We need to be agreeing with other believers. Now you say, well, does that mean we have to agree on everything? No. In the first service, I was uh, mocking the Cardinal fans. See, White Sox fans, I don't just beat up on you guys. I beat up on the Cardinal fans who went 0 for 3 in the playoffs and are out of the playoffs. That's what happens when you're enemies of the Cubs. You have great despair brought to your life. And uh, we don't agree on everything. Some people are getting mad right now that I'm talking about baseball. We don't agree on everything. But what is being articulated here is a passage from Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. And it talks about us going uh, to the altar with our gift. And the Bible says, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, if we remember as we're at the altar that our brother, uh, that we've offended our brother or our brother has something against us, we are to leave our gift at the altar, verse 24 says, and go make right before we worship. And that is of great importance as, as we commune together. The book of 1 John says, how can we love the Father when we don't love one another? How can we say the love of the Father is in us when we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ? 
And so we need to be abiding with Christ. So where does all that leave us? Where do we find ourselves then? Well, I want to share with you what I believe the elders have said is the final product of this part of the document that we've been revising of the Constitution. So I want to read through what we have and explain as we go. Uh, We believe, by, by the way, the first paragraph of that section is found in your outlines at the top of the front of the sheet there. This is the second paragraph. We believe that in New Testament times, new believers participated in the Lord's Supper only after taking the initial step of obedience and discipleship commanded by Christ by publicly identifying themselves with Him through the waters of baptism. It was their baptism that marked them as members of the body of Christ. And it was the members of that one body who symbolically participated in the body and blood of Christ by the means of the Lord's Supper. Let's stop there for a moment. What the elders are articulating in this new document within the Constitution is the important belief that we have as elders of the importance of baptism. And that the New Testament practice was that people were first baptized before they did any other commands or followed any other command by Christ. Baptism was the first thing. That's why you see in almost every passage of Scripture where there is a conversion uh, in the book of Acts that people were baptized. In fact, two baptisms uh, that happen happen in the middle of the night because we believe that it was so important for the immediate obedience and identification with baptism. And so the elders feel it's right to have that in writing. That is our position. Now let's move to the next point though. Nevertheless, so here's, here's something. Nevertheless, while this is our conviction, we recognize that not all genuine believers have the same understanding with regard to the New Testament's teaching about who may participate in the Lord's Supper. The elders are saying, hey, we believe this. We see this in Scripture. But we also recognize that not everybody is at the same place. And so we recognize this, and what do we say? And because we do not wish to create division in the body of Christ, it is not our policy to exclude from the Lord's table those believers whose understanding is different from ours. Turn the the, uh, flip thing here. PowerPoint. When we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what will happen? The elders will regularly admonish those who are present to examine their hearts and lives before participating. So what we're going to ask is, we're going to present what the Word of God says. Examine your heart. Have you come to know Christ? Well, if you say yes, okay. How about being baptized? Have you been baptized yet? This is important stuff. You need to be baptized. Have you done that? Well, some of the other ways that we'll see that we walk in fellowship and obedience include the following. Turn the slide. We see it involves submitting ourselves to the Lordship of Christ by trusting and turning to Him, by taking the first steps of obedience and discipleship, identifying yourself through the waters of baptism, having made right everything with God, confessing any recent sins and renewing your commitment to live for Him, and finally harboring... Uh, Help me out here. Harboring, harboring, Paul, harboring no resentment or other ill feelings toward any fellow believer in as much as the New Testament teaches that those who have been forgiven are themselves to extend forgiveness. You say, Tim, why would you say all this? Well, if you're a member of the church, you know why. For the last six months, we've been in dialogue with the members of the church, and it's been a, it's been a, a pretty lively discussion. And the lively discussion is who can participate. And we believe we have come to a place of common ground that we can say it is of great importance that the elders teach the importance of things like trusting Christ as your Savior, about being baptized, about living in fellowship with God and living in fellowship with one another. We need to articulate those things. They need to be in our documents and it's something we need to preach and proclaim. But we also recognize that this is the Lord's table. And that it is cannot be our job to, if you will, police everybody and to make sure everybody's there. So what we will do is teach you and tell you what the Word of God says on who can participate and who shouldn't. And then we will leave it to you. No one will be excluded. But I say that with a warning. The Scriptures say that if we do this in an unworthy manner, we sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So the only warning I give you is not that you have to be in agreement with us. The only thing I would ask that you would understand and agree with first and foremost is this is serious business. The Scriptures say that those who were playing games with communion were finding themselves sick and some had even died. 
That's what 1 Corinthians says. That's not what Tim says. That's what the Apostle Paul says. My friends, this is serious business, and that's why your elders took the amount of time they did to try to get this thing right. We want to be right when it comes to serving the Lord's Supper. And this is the position that we have as a church. If it is agreed upon by our membership, it will become uh, the position of the church, uh, God, uh, hoping that uh, that will become... uh, the results. So I've given my two cents on that. So moving beyond that, beyond the participants, the next question is, uh, the, is what, when are we to celebrate? That's the next one. I know I'm moving beyond where you're at, Paul. I'm sorry. When are we to celebrate? In Acts chapter 2, while there's no command given, Acts chapter 2 says that they celebrated every day. They broke bread every day. Write this passage down, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. In Acts 20, verse 7, in a city called Troas, it says that they gathered together on the first Sunday uh, to break bread together. So it seems that from Acts 2 to Acts 20, the practice went from happening every day to being a practice that happened once uh, every week. Now we practice here once a month, and I think that's fine. In fact, even during the time upcoming uh, fourth before uh, Easter, uh, we spend time each week celebrating communion. And why is that? Because no command is given. In fact, the scripture says, Paul says in the NIV, whenever, I don't like that translation as much as some of the other translations that say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. The reason why is the original Greek isn't saying, well, whenever you do it, it's saying as often as you do it. It's to happen with great frequency. It doesn't say how many times a month we are to do it. It should be a practice that has a level of frequent use in in its its place within the church. The next question is, who leads it? Who's supposed to lead it? Again, no command is given. But because uh, the Lord's Supper is the means of the church, the ordinance of the church to remember and to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection, then it seems obvious that the elders and the leaders of the church should be the ones who are a part of administering it, those who are a part of overseeing it. But I will say this, it doesn't take an elder to have a communion service. Again, this is where we depart from Roman Catholicism. Because the elements are not changing, we need no priest. We need no priest to change the elements. And because we are the priesthood of believers, technically anyone could celebrate and, and uh, be a part of leading a communion service as long as they are qualified in many of the same ways that we need to be in participation. But within the confines of the church, you will probably always see an elder or an elder representative leading this time. The final question that's not on your your page, but I want you to add this is, what about children? What about children? Now, I have uh, uh, three boys that are coming up to the age of uh, celebrating communion. And what are we to do with them? For those that have children uh, that are my children's age, or maybe you haven't even have children yet, but this question will come, what about them? The second that they accept Christ and, and bow the knee to Jesus, is that the time they should uh, be served communion? Well, that's a great question. I would lead you back to the four reasons that the elders have said are the important precursors uh, to communion. And I would also say that even if they've trusted Christ as their Savior, my, my own thoughts on this issue, and I say them as my own thoughts, are that you should wait. Now, I'm, I know I'm not in full agreement with everybody out there, but I think children should wait. And there's six reasons why I believe children should wait. First of all, write these down very quickly, especially if you're a parent of child, young children. Number one, wait for your children to have a greater understanding of the Lord's Supper so that they can celebrate with a fuller knowledge. Wait for greater understanding. Number two, wait for more independent thinking. I am so thankful my parents did not let me celebrate communion until I was older because I did, I'm glad I did not just do what mom and dad did, but I waited to understand and to make a decision for myself uh, to take the elements. Number three, uh, wait for it to be more significant. While they may be qualified, allow it to be at a time where they can see the full significance of what is going on and what is being transpired. So wait for greater significance. The next one is wait for greater anticipation. We live in a world where uh, our immediate gratification, we want something, we get it. I want this, mom. I want this, dad. Sure, here you go, kid. You've got it. And it takes away the anticipation. The best way I can tell you this, my son Noah 
went to one of your homes and one of you told him about Star Wars and the greatness of Star Wars. Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, and all the people. Okay? And my son, who's only six and a half, shame on you for telling him about Star Wars, six and a half year old comes and says, I want to see Star Wars. All my friends have seen Star Wars. And I said, you know what? I just don't think you're old enough yet to see Star Wars, son. But dad, everybody else is. I said, okay, son. I said, I want to make a a deal with you. I will take and I will make the night that we watch Star Wars to be the greatest night. It's just going to be you and dad. We're going to pop up popcorn and all that. We're going to enjoy this thing together. But I ask for one thing, that you wait. You know how many times he's gone to friends' houses that have said, hey, we can watch Star Wars? I was so happy to hear my son come back and say, Daddy, they wanted to watch Star Wars, but I said, I can't. I've got a date with Dad. I said, son, don't talk like that. That doesn't sound right. We don't have daughters in our home, okay? You've got a night out with Dad. That's how you talk. And, uh, and he's waiting. And that time is coming when he'll be able to do it. And that thing has become so significant to him. It has come to a point that he will, great, he will understand it. Because I understand and recognize, and this is not true of communion, of course, but I understand right now, while he wants to watch Star Wars, it's going to scare the daylights out of him in a lot of ways. And so he said, you know what, let's wait for some better understanding that he recognizes isn't really true stuff, but it's just a, a good movie. And so we want to wait for greater anticipation. Allow them to really want it. Number uh, five, wait for greater memories. I can remember the first time I took communion. And sadly, many people allow their children too quickly to take communion that it becomes a distant memory. They don't remember when they took it or why they began to take it. The next one is, is that they need to wait for maturity. Allow your children to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, Tim, I've got children... And I've let them have communion. So what's your advice to me? Let them keep taking it. Let them keep taking it. And if there's some areas that teaching needs to be done, then teach them, mom and dad. Teach them. This is important stuff. They are being judged whether you like it or not by God himself. And so your responsibility as the spiritual leader is to teach them. Don't let the Sunday schools teach them. Don't let just hand them over to the pastors or the elders to teach them. It is your responsibility as the spiritual heads in your home, especially fathers, to listen to my words. Teach your children spiritual things. Teach them. And don't do it as the cups and the uh, are being passed two minutes before. And this means Jesus' blood and this means Jesus' body and pray some quick prayer. This means gathering your son or daughter together. You've allowed them to have this responsibility of participating. Then do the due diligence in teaching them what is being celebrated. I'll tell you what. What I usually hear from people is my biggest fear. Well, I'm not sure why I'm doing it. Then you better learn. You better understand. And that's where I would say where your pastors and elders can come and help you along and teach you and equip you. That's why we teach messages like this so you know what it means and why you ought to participate in the way that you should. We need to make sure, folks, this is serious business. We need to do it right. And we need to do it with love and affection in our heart, giving God glory, honor, and praise. Well, one final thing I want us to look at, and that is, what is the profit of it? I know it sounds weird, but, but what, what are we to gain by it? We drink some juice, we eat a little cracker, and we say that this is to be spiritual nourishment for our souls. Well, how is that? What, what is it about uh, the communion time that leads us to that? Well, there are two things it does. First of all, our, our celebration of the Lord's Supper encourages us. It encourages us. Well, how does it encourage us? Well, it encourages us to do four things. Number one, it encourages us to examine our lives. The text tells us that a man ought to examine himself. Because he does not want to take the body and blood of Christ in an unworthy manner. To take these things in an unworthy manner would bring judgment on ourselves. And so we need to examine ourselves. So what do we do? We acknowledge Christ and His holiness in our sinfulness. We recognize as believers, every time we take this uh, bread and this cup, that we are sinners in need of grace. Not just for the point of our justification, but ongoing. We need Christ every day. We need Him every day to minister to us and to take care of us because apart from Him, we can do nothing. And so we need to examine our lives. Am I living independent of Christ? Because if I am, then I'm doing nothing for Him and His kingdom. Number two, it is given to illustrate our faith. 
It encourages us to illustrate our faith. As we take the bread and as we take the cup, the Bible says that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a proclamation. It illustrates to the world, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. By faith, I believe him to be my Lord and Savior. By faith, the cross of Calvary is my redemption of my sins and my soul. It it takes care of all that Christ required of me as a sinner. And it illustrates to the world the faith that we have. Next, as we take the bread and the cup, it is a recommitment. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim, well, what do we proclaim? We proclaim that Jesus Christ is our Savior, and we recommit each time we take it by examining ourselves to the life of Christ. How are we to examine ourselves? Who is the the one we are to, if you will, size ourselves up against? I love what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3 says. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you understand that there are people today, and maybe you're one of them, that has lost heart and grown weary? That is tired of walking the Christian walk? That is tired of living the life of faith? And so what are we to do? Every time we come to the table, we see Jesus. We see him crucified. We see him resurrected from the dead. And we look and we consider Jesus that though he endured such opposition from sinful men that he did not grow weary and lose heart. And that's how we don't grow weary and how we don't lose heart is we recommit just as Jesus, not my will, God, but your will be done. The final thing that we do is we anticipate. The idea here is that Christ says as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you understand and recognize that when we partake, we are telling the world that Jesus Christ is coming again? Amen? Let me tell you that again. Jesus Christ is coming again. Amen? This is why we, we eat at this table. We eat this supper is because we say our savior, unlike the, the, the Islamic faith, we do not go and mourn in Mecca or Medina, the, the, the burial of our prophet. But we, we worship and we adore a risen Savior who's not in a grave, but who sits at the right hand of the Father. And we participate in this meal as a remembrance of being encouraged that Christ is coming back again. And that we need to understand that and recognize it. Finally, very quickly, this is to encompass us. The idea here is that the Lord's Supper is not just something in our past that we remember, but it's a part of our present and it's a part of the future to come. We were sinners in need of saving. And Ephesians chapter 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sin. But our present is reminded of us that God, because he is full of mercy, sent Jesus Christ to die so that we could be saved by grace through faith. And that one day we will taste the incomparable riches, incomparable riches of glory that are found in Christ Jesus. That is the promise that is to come. This isn't something we just look back to, but we look back, we look within, and we look forward to the time that is to come.